Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. U.S. policy on international hostage-taking is pretty simple. The U.S. doesn't pay ransom. The logic is, if you paid ransom, you'd just create an incentive for the kidnappers. But how true is that? Joel Simon explores the topic in his book, We Want to Negotiate the Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages, and Ransom. Joel Simon's day job is as executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thank you so much for having me on. I got to admit, there was a lot about this I didn't know. Um, And it's uh, an interesting how did the U.S. get to this position in the first place? In the yeah. book, you cite Richard Nixon. Yeah. Well, it's really a very difficult challenge. What do you do when people are taken hostage, you know, when people are kidnapped? As a government, how do you respond? And this became a problem for the United States. It really started in the 1960s in Latin America when U.S. diplomats were targeted by uh, leftist groups. And the U.S. government started to do research into policy opportunities. How, do, how should you respond? And then the issue sort of spread to the Middle East. You saw uh, Palestinian groups that were engaging in this tactic as well. And in 1973, a Palestinian group took over the Saudi embassy in Khartoum in, in Sudan and took a bunch of uh, diplomats hostage, including two U.S. diplomats. And one of their demands was for the release of Sirhan Sirhan, the convicted assassin of Robert F. Kennedy. And the next morning, as it happened, Richard Nixon had a press conference scheduled, and he was asked at that press conference, how do you intend to respond to this demand from these hostage takers? And he said, well, we're not going to negotiate. We're not going to pay blackmail. And uh, as soon as the word reached the hostage takers, that, that this is how the president had responded. They actually took the two U.S. diplomats down to the basement of the embassy and, and shot them dead. So the people who were actually involved in these considerations and the formulation of the policy told me that after Nixon made that statement and after it had cost those two lives, it became a policy written in blood. There had been no groups discussing this. There had been no well, logic behind Well, there had been the actually, actually there was. The, the person who was sort of tasked with doing research into how to respond uh, was a counterterrorism expert from the RAND Corporation, which does research for the United States government on uh, these kinds of national security issues. And he told me that at the time, you know, his research had indicated that no concessions and not negotiating didn't really correlate with a decrease in hostage taking. And he actually briefed um, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and said, you know, my findings indicate that this uh, posture of not negotiating does not actually lead to a reduction in hostage taking. Uh, but Kissinger was not very receptive to these conclusions. And by that time, the policy was pretty much articulated. And it became a formal policy. It was more of a political political statement, but became a formal policy with a national security directive that was first uh, uh, developed at the end of the the Clinton administration and actually affirmed in the Bush administration. And it's been our policy ever since. You start out the book with a couple of chapters on France and Spain, which have different policies on this entirely. And the French policy is um, there's a lot of cultural things going on there that are different than ours. So I started out my research in France because France has a reputation of being the country that is most willing to pay 
ransom and to engage in negotiations when their people are taken hostage around the world. But what I found when I started digging more deeply into this was that it was more complicated. The reason it has this reputation is because whenever a French person is taken hostage, you know, the government becomes involved and then when they're released, the, 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 the president goes to the airport and meets the returning hostage. So the perception is, of course, you know, that something was paid. But what I found was that it's really a political calculation in France. There's a French political culture that has two facets. One is there's an expectation that the government is sort of responsible for the well-being of French citizens within France and certainly around the world. That's a sort of a legacy of the colonial history. And there's a culture of political mobilization. So if you can get people into the street to demand the return of a French hostage, the government will engage and they have relatively few tools available to them. And so paying ransom is one of them and and, and they pay. But they don't always pay. It really is a political calculation. It depends on whether there's enough political pressure on the government. Spain, on the other hand, has made a kind of – I actually had an opportunity to speak with the head of Spanish intelligence and while he didn't say this directly, they have a policy of – denying it officially, you know, he sort of acknowledged that these issues are looked at in a political environment and the the direction that the intelligence services have been given from the government through successive administrations is bring the hostages home. And Spain has a perfect record. All of their hostages have come home alive. They're hostages. Now, when we're talking about hostages, we're talking about political hostages uh, taken by terror groups, for example, around the world. They have a recovery rate of of 100 percent. That's the best in the world. And they they have a little stronger policy of paying than the French. They're yeah, essentially... actually, the French. I I think the French. It's a political calculation for the French. It's a question of, you know, what is the political cost of not bringing the hostage home? What are the strategic costs in paying a ransom? Because you might be paying a ransom to a group that uh, is attacking French interests. So for the French, it's a complex balancing act. And for the Spanish, you know, they don't perceive that they have the same strategic interests. And it has to do with with Spanish national politics and the kind of nationalist, sort of secessionist uh, tendencies within Spain. And so the central government wants to assert its value and one of the ways it can do that is by taking active measures to protect Spanish citizens who are threatened by uh, kidnapping and hostage taking. I'm talking with Joel Simon about his book, We Want to Negotiate the Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages, and Ransom. I wanted to dwell on France there for a second yeah. because there's this woman who is an ex-hostage yeah. who does a lot of the public pressure in right. France. And her name's Juliana Arbenas. No, no, it's Florence Florence oh, Flor- Arbenas. Florence Arbenas. Arbenas. She's she's a well-known journalist, and she was a very well-known journalist uh, before she was taken hostage in Iraq. She was working with her Iraqi stringer, and the two of them were taken hostage. And the response in France by the media, by her colleagues, uh, by French society was – and by the government actually – was to mobilize the entire – Population. There were huge rallies. There was, you know, campaigning in the media, and the government really struggled even to like locate the, the hostage takers. But eventually, there was a negotiation. I met with Florence. She is absolutely convinced that money was paid for her release. She doesn't know the details, but after she was released, she decided that what she could do to support 
other French hostages around the world was lead what are called support committees. And these are groups of concerned citizens that advocate for the release of French hostages around the world. And she leads marches and, and puts pressure on the government. And I asked her actually why she does this because some people criticize her and say, you know, when you do these marches, the ransom goes up because the, the hostages are more visible and so the government will, will, may have to pay more. And she said, well, may, well maybe so, but, you know, is it, isn't a life worth it? And she said, and I believe that when you pay ransom, when you get someone back – and she, she was very uh, – you know, she had her eyes wide open about these issues. She said, I believe that you are affirming – the value of French democracy. You are saying a life is really valuable to us. We care about our people and you're contrasting that with the craven indifference of the kidnappers to human life. So she thinks it sends a really positive message. It's an affirmation of, 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 of French, the French ideals and democracy. Not everyone agrees with her. But that was, that was her perspective and I thought it was very important that I hear from her and that I understand her, her reasoning. And these committees that, uh, that are set up, they do create public pressure. There Absolutely. Is, this is a big deal. In it France. is a big deal. There we is have a... nothing like that here. No, no, because I think that the French public views hostage-taking very differently. They view it as a threat to their national interests and their ability to, pro- to project French soft power, if you will. I mean, sort of cultural power, business relationships. You know, if French people can't operate in these environments, and, and they also have a, you know, a history of valuing journalism. They have a very activist press. And so when journalists are taking hostage, the whole media will, will mobilize behind them, and the public comes out. They really support them. And they, they put sufficient political pressure uh, on the government that the government has to engage. Obviously, we have a very different political culture in this country, and that's one of the reasons these issues tend not to attract the same kind of attention from, from our government. You have an interesting digression about where France gets the money or where yeah. any country gets yeah. the money. Uh, for, to do this, do they just have millions of dollars in a pot that they can just cough up? Well, the French, the official policy, the interesting thing about this whole book is you can't find a single official anywhere in the world who <laughs> will defend the policy because it's a secret policy. And the French officially deny and they do it quite vehemently and insistently that they never pay. And even as they go and they meet the, um, the returning hostage at the airport, they're still denying it. And what I found is this maybe technically true. They found sort of workarounds. Sometimes it's aid money that's diverted, so they'll, they'll provide aid money and somebody else will kind of channel the money to the hostage takers. Sometimes they'll have a third country. So a former hostage who's done research on this told me that Qatar will sometimes pay on behalf of other governments. And there's rumored to be, there's widespread reports, I wouldn't say rumored, there's widespread reports to be kind of a hostage slush fund that French businesses contribute to, that the government accesses in these kind of situations. So they're able to maintain a plausible deniability while still supporting the recovery of their nationals, which sometimes entails paying ransom. All right. That gets into some pretty interesting territory about Mm -hmm. the money. And uh, there was a couple of chapters in your book that are about something I did not really know existed, which was insurance yeah. uh, for kidnapping, kidnapping, kidnapping insurance. And insurance. Yeah. And so uh, where did this come from? How did this happen? Well, in the 1960s in Europe, there were a number of, of leftist groups that uh, engaged in kidnapping as a both political activity and a way of generating finances for their operations. And so wealthy Europeans were, were targeted in these kidnappings. And they, you know, they were 
doubly victimized because, first of all, their loved ones were, were put through this terrible ordeal. And then when they paid the ransom, they were destitute. You know, sometimes whole families were destroyed by these enormous ransoms. So they started to develop this new product called Kidnapping and Ransom Insurance. It was basically developed in the UK, which is sort of the global center of the insurance industry. And the way it worked was that you would have this insurance and while it wouldn't front the money, for a ransom payment after you paid, they would reimburse you if you had this policy. And the logic of it was that uh, you weren't going to pay more be- and you, you know, because you could only pay what you had and that the negotiations were credible because you would have to sell your house and do all the things you would need to do to raise money. But afterwards, you could activate the policy and get reimbursed. And from this initial framework, it's actually grown to you know, a global industry. Most large companies that operate overseas uh, have kidnapping and ransom insurance, many wealthy individuals. The thing about kidnapping and ransom sur- insurance is it can actually, it's supposed to be secret from the person who's insured. It can actually be invalidated if they know they're insured. And the reason for that is they don't want the person who's kidnapped negotiating directly. The fewer people who know that there's insurance, uh, the better. But the truth is that now it's a pretty standard policy that people have in high-risk environments. It's an industry. But it's also important to point out, and this is a distinction maybe we'll talk about, is that it, it can only reimburse you if you're kidnapped by criminals, if you're kidnapped by terrorists, the policy is invalid and you, you are not reimbursed. It does sound like this evolved into something quite sophisticated. And yeah. these people are very successful at almost working as intermediaries yeah. Yeah. and consultants and, and getting people back. Yes. Well, one of the things, one of the, the, the industry um, innovations was that, that at a certain point really in the 1970s, uh, when this became a global product, I, I profile an insurance broker named Doug Milne who sort of introduced the product in Colombia and South America where there's a kidnapping epidemic. And one of the, the features they introduced was these professional consultants. So when you were – they realized that the families were in way over their head trying to negotiate on behalf of their loved ones and maybe paying too much. And so the insurance companies were paying more than they had to and, you know, there was a greater risk of of something going wrong. So now when you have one of these policies, if you're kidnapped, they provide a professional negotiator. And these folks have a lot of experience. They kind of know, well, this group has taken this person of this nationality in this place. It's going to take this amount of time. It's going to cost this much. And we have a mechanism for delivering the ransom that's been successful. There's even a kind of, you know, honor of thieves culture between the professional negotiators and the hostage takers because, you know, the one shared interest that they have, you know, the hostage is only valuable when they're alive. You know, they both want to keep the hostage alive for different reasons, but they're united in that common uh, interest, and that's what allows the negotiations to succeed. Is there a tension between these insurance folks and the government folks? Who, mm-hmm. uh, who And how do they decide who takes over when? If yeah. the French government's going to do all the paying or when they don't? Well, or... we, haven't, we haven't really delved into the, the no concessions, concessions divide. So let me, let me touch on that, and that sort of explains the complexities here. So we talked at the outset that the United States does not negotiate with terrorist groups. The UK has a, has a similar policy. They will, however, 
allow you and it's legal to pay ransom to criminal groups and there's a certain designation. So if you are an American and you're kidnapped by uh, a criminal group, you're allowed to pay ransom. The policy is valid. If you're kidnapped by a terrorist group, uh, it's kind of a gray area but technically illegal to pay the ransom. And if you are a European and you're kidnapped by a terror group, even if you're insured, and I talked to some of these professional negotiators, the government, the intelligence services will often come in and say, you can back off. We'll take care of this. We'll take the negotiations from here. And then it goes into this black box. Nobody really knows what happens. The hostage comes home. The government celebrates it. They officially deny. They pay ransom. But everyone knows what happened. Talking with Joel Simon about his book, We Want to Negotiate, The Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages, and Ransom. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Joel Simon about his book, We Want to Negotiate the Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages, and Ransom. Joel is the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. To bring things back to the United States again, the Obama administration took an interesting tact on hostages mm-hmm. and hostage negotiation. Um, it almost started coming under the rubric of not supplying terrorist groups with funding. They yeah. were they were very and this is a very serious issue because there you cite lots of instances yeah. in your book where you pay the Taliban something and then they come at you with something and yeah. they kill people. Absolutely. So I mean there are, I think there are two arguments against paying ransom. The first one is that encourages more kidnapping. The evidence of that is is scarce. Because the reality is that there's a market for kidnapping, right? Because somebody's going to pay. Families will pay. Businesses will pay. Some governments will pay. And once there's a market, then the crime tends to be opportunistic. So the kidnappers are just grabbing whatever Westerners they see. They're not checking passports. So whether you pay or not, you're you're still just as vulnerable. Where, Where there is a correlation, though, is countries that pay get their hostages back alive. So we talked about Spain, 100% recovery. Uh, U.S. has about a 25% rate rate of recovery. So about 75% of American hostages who are kidnapped in these circumstances don't make it out alive. That's the cost of the policy. The second justification for the policy is that the payment of ransom finances terror organizations around the world. And this is unquestionable. And, and it's a problem. It's a huge problem. And the Obama administration was looking for ways to deprive terror organizations. Obviously, this is a legitimate interest that the government has in of, of this sort of funding. And they believe that if they could put in place sort of a global framework of no concessions, so if nobody paid, then the crime would ha- – there'd be no incentive to commit the crime. The problem was there was such a – you know, I think they sort of lost track of the humanitarian considerations. People, governments, somebody will always find a way to pay. So ultimately, 
You, you know, can't this, keep that deal. It's, it's real. It was. It, it really was. You know, it, it was logical, but it was ultimately not successful. In my book, I, I had a conversation with the person in the Treasury Department uh, who was tasked with this responsibility, and he told me about his, you know, conversations with European allies, and they would concede that it would be better if nobody paid, but they kind of acknowledged that the political reality in their countries, you know, it was impossible. You know, in that circumstance, ironically, a Gulf. And, and a kind of divergence between countries that pay and don't pay actually can increase the amount of money going to terrorists and undermine the, the policy itself, the objective. Why is that? I actually quote a letter that uh, Osama bin Laden sent to the al-Qaeda affiliate in uh, North Africa when they had a group of hostages. And he told them, OK, they're, they're not paying. Well, kill the least valuable hostage. That'll make sure the other ones pay. Well, if you have some countries that will don't negotiate and don't pay and others that do, who is the least valuable hostage? So you can murder the least valuable hostage. You get the political propaganda and the political benefit from that. And you put pressure on the Europeans who, are, who, who may pay and are more likely to pay more. And you actually increase the amount of money going to terror organizations. So this lack of cooperation, this lack of consensus uh, actually undermines this legitimate goal. All right. So you're the Obama administration there and you've got this policy. You're trying mm-hmm. to do this thing that is going to restrict everyone's paying of the hostages. Mm-hmm. We got into this situation with al-Qaeda in Syria yeah. and the, the ISIS uh, kidnappings mm-hmm. of yeah. a whole big group of right. internationals. And you detail this in the book and go through what happened. And and it looks bad for the U.S. The U.S. does not look good in that. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that the hostage takers were able to exploit this differences in policies. I think they stumbled. I, I had an opportunity to talk to a number of the surviving hostages, and my sense was these Islamic State militants initially were just grabbing whoever they could. They didn't really have a plan or a policy, you know. And as they probed, they kind of stumbled into what they perceived as a you know completely depraved and horrific. Uh, opportunity from their twisted perspective, which was that they could ransom the European hostages. They could kill the hostages from the countries, the UK and the US, who who, who did not pay or would not pay. Uh, the American families, by the way, were just left on their own to try and negotiate the return of their loved ones from the Islamic State, which was more than infuriating, which was, which was absolutely cruel. And, and I interviewed some of them, and this experience was just shattering for them because they really expected their government to support them uh, in these circumstances. And from, from the Islamic State's perspective, they got all this money, and then they got these victims, which they used to send a terrorizing message to the world to, for recruitment. I mean, they made a big point of filming these, these horrific executions because they used them for recruitment, and they were actual, actually able to, through their own depravity, suggest that the, these governments around the world, the U.S. and the U.K. particularly, were not doing enough to look after their people. So they, they tried to present this as a sort of craven indifference. So in their own propaganda, this was um, successful. It's a, it's a, well, I guess they call it a prisoner's dilemma for a yeah, reason. Yeah. It's a, you cannot win, essentially, in this dilemma. There's no, uh, you can't really yeah. get, it, get it right. Yeah, it's precisely because 
I mean, I, when I got to the end of the book, and I, I should say that I started out this book, you know, it came out of a personal circumstance, which is that the family of James Foley, when he was uh, the journalist, you know, I run an organization called the Committee to Protect Journalists that defends the rights of journalists around the world. So they came to me and they asked me if I could help them uh, raise a ransom. And, you know, that set off all sorts of issues in my own mind, you know, um, would I be prosecuted? Would my organization face legal jeopardy? You know, was, I knew Jim Foley and, I, and, and he was f- close to people on our staff. So, you know, I wanted to do everything I could to help them, but I was worried, you know, would paying ransom increase the risk for other journalists? So it was only, you know, I started out with a different perspective and I came to the conclusion that, you know, each hostage taking is different. Each situation is different. If you have a single policy that's supposed to work in every single situation, you're going to get it wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, countries should pay willy-nilly. I'm just saying look at each case differently. Keep your objectives in mind. Your objectives is to bring the people home alive while safeguarding national security and ensuring that as little money as possible goes to the hostage takers. But, you know, if you put yourself into this policy framework and your opening gambit is we won't negotiate, you're undermining the value of your host- the hostage. You're reducing the likelihood of a successful resolution. And frankly, you're not really keeping Americans safer. Is the U.S. on any better footing today? James mm-hmm. Foley's mm-hmm. mother yeah. and father, uh, you mentioned, yeah. have campaigned yeah. against yeah. this. And there have been changes since yeah. the Obama administration. Well, in the Obama administration, I have to say, you know, I, I talked about how the, the families of these hostages just felt – they felt abandoned by their government in the, in the time of greatest need because the government's position – first of all, they were just, you know, bounced from one agency to the next. They didn't feel they had appropriate support from the FBI. They were told by some people – you know, well, if you pay, it's technically illegal, but nothing will happen to you. But other people said you could actually be prosecuted. They didn't really, they weren't people engaged looking for creative um, solutions. So the families felt felt abandoned. And when the worst happened, uh, they were quite outspoken in criticizing uh, the Obama administration. And much to its credit, the Obama administration heard this criticism and engaged and recalibrated. And they did a whole hostage policy review. The first thing they did at the outset was they said, we're not going to look at the no concessions policy. That's going to remain in place. But we are going to look at ways to better support the families, to better coordinate our response, to kind of push the margins of the policy. Maybe we can communicate with the hostage takers. Maybe there are things we can do. And I have to say that's really made a difference. It's made a difference in the Trump administration. The structure remains in place. The policy remains in place. Um, no concessions, but the structure that supports the families is much improved. And, and I think that's, that's one legacy of this, this terrible, terrible moment in our history. Is there any way for the U.S. to uh, rethink its no-paying-all-the-time policy? It is, it, there seem to be several laws in play yeah. here, the Patriot Act and yes. you cannot support terrorists. And, yeah. um, how, does that, how do you undo that if you want to? What I'm sort of come at the end of the book, I sort of come to the conclusion that we need a sort of policy of strategic ambiguity. What does that mean? That means that we don't really articulate, you know, what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Like the French. <laughs> well, I think I think the French, uh, the French are trapped in a paradox of their own that they've created, which is that you know, first of all, it's really unfair if you can't get people in the street. You know, they're not going to do any. You know, you have to protest, and when you protest, the price goes up. 
So, you know, they're caught in a different kind of paradox, but it's, it's not ideal for the French either. But and I, just to give people an idea, sometimes they're paying 15 million, 30 million numbers well, that are thrown around. Seen, and, I mean, the numbers, and, and then kidnappers are citing these numbers back to, yeah. to, in negotiations. Yeah. I mean, one thing I found in the book is the numbers you know, that you hear are not always accurate, but it's in the multi-millions of dollars, absolutely. Millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars are going to terrorist groups. So you want to pay as little as possible getting people into the street increases the value of the hostage. So the ideal scenario is like to be to – be, to be, that's why I say strategic ambiguity. Look in each case. What are the national security interests? There are many situations where you just may decide based on our national security considerations, there's just no way we can pay. But there are others where maybe you can and maybe – and it's not about paying. I, I, it's really about supporting the families and helping them look for creative solutions. Maybe it's you know a private conversation with somebody who's willing to make a donation to the family saying, you know, this is technically illegal but you won't be prosecuted. That's a form of paying. And it, but it's creative. You know, it gets the person home. It's not an ideal solution. There is no ideal solution. You have to make compromises. But to start the negotiation, I really think going back to the Nixon administration, you know, we won't negotiate. We won't pay ransom. It's a political slogan. It doesn't really make Americans safer. Look at each case individually. Look at the specific circumstances. Consider the national security implications. Consider the human interests of the family. Be creative and trying to get these folks home. Joel Simon is the author of We Want to Negotiate the Secret World of Kidnapping Hostages and Ransom. Joel is the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thanks a lot for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Monica Ng talks with author Lisa C. Her new book features a women's diving collective in Korea. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Author Lisa C.'s new book features two best friends who are part of a women's diving collective in Korea. WBEZ's Monica Eng has this conversation with C. about her book, The Island of Sea Women. It's really great. You know, we've, we've talked to you for um, several of your other books. And this one uh, takes a departure. It takes us to Korea to visit with this fascinating culture of Henya women. First of all, can you tell me the first time you heard about this culture and who they are? The first time I heard about them, I was actually in a doctor's office about 10 years ago. And you know how you're sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And I was flipping through magazines in the lobby. And I saw this one article, one photo, one paragraph, and I ripped it out of the magazine and took it home with me. And ever since that time, whenever I would see anything about these diving women, I would, you know, I was collecting it and slowly, quietly doing research until finally about two years ago, I decided this is the time. 
And so for those who don't know, just who are these women? So there's an island off the tip of South Korea called Jeju. And on this island, for hundreds of years, the, it, they've had a matrifocal society. So and can you a, tell us what that means? Yeah, well, it's not a matriarchy, but it is a society focused on women. And so for hundreds of years, the women there have been free divers. They take deep, deep breaths. They dive down about 60 feet. That's deep enough to get the bends. They hold their breath for two to three minutes, harvest seafood, and they're the breadwinners in their families, and their husbands are the ones who take care of the babies, do the cooking, take care of the house, take care of the elders. And it used to be just as recently as the late 1970s that there were still about 30,000 of these divers on this one island. They would retire at age 55 if they lived that long. It's very, very dangerous work. Today, there are under 4,000 of them left, and the youngest one is 55. So when I was there, I interviewed women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, most of whom were still diving. And they say that in about 15 years, this culture is going to be gone from the earth. And you mention in the book that, you know, your main character kind of even, you know, brushes someone off who comes to see her at the beginning because they are pestered uh, by journalists, by writers, by scientists, scientists who are curious. And so that would make me think, wow, did you have a hard time getting on the inside? And how did you do your research? I didn't have a hard time, actually. I had several people who were there on Jeju who I had contacted in advance who set up several interviews for me. And then I also would just walk along the beach or, you know, try to be out when these henya were going into the sea, but also when they were coming out of the sea. And then the last is that some of the older women, um, maybe they have an injury, maybe they're just really too old to go into the sea anymore, they will sit on the beach and sort algae. And so they're sort of dotted along the beach. And so I would go and talk to them. And I found them actually extremely open, very blunt in a way, you know, very, very straightforward. They have very loud voices. You know, they've spent so many years diving pretty deeply. So their ears are pretty shot. Their hearing is shot. So they kind of shout like this and, and they brag, you know, I'm the best henyo. And, and uh, they love to tease and they love to joke around. And so, they, but they also just say, you know, they'll hit a point and they'll say, I have to work. Go away. <laughs> The other interviews that had been set up in advance, those were much longer. And I remember this one day, uh, I went to interview a woman. She was 93 years old. Her father had been a Japanese collaborator, and her life had been really good as a child. And then he died quite, you know, he died when she was young. And so she became a henyo to support herself. Her daughter is now a Ph.D. in English, and so she acted as the translator. This was a long day, and I kept saying to the older woman, you know, if you're tired, we can stop. I can come back. No, she just had so much energy. She just kept talking and talking and talking. Meanwhile, her daughter was getting, you know, paler and I could see was very emotional. And at the end of the interview, I said, you know, are you okay? And she said, well, this is, I've learned more about my mother today 
than I have in my entire life. And I think sometimes what happens is, you know, we don't ask our mothers or grandmothers the right questions or even ask them the questions, and they're certainly not volunteering. But sometimes somebody that you don't know, you'll, you'll suddenly confide, uh, you know, a lot of things that were painful or hard, and that's what she did, and it was very intense, really very powerful. And I was able to use some of the details of her life to help build the character of Meja, who's the daughter of a Japanese collaborator. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. You know, a few of your books talk about Japanese influence, Japanese occupation, or military um, intervention. intervention, and how that affects the lives of the women in your books. Was that intentional, or this, these just happened to be circumstances that, that were very powerful at the time of the stories in your books? Well, for China, of course, the Japanese invaded in the Sino-Japanese War and then, you know, the Japanese in World War II. They were very active all around the Pacific. But actually, when I started this book, I didn't know that Korea was a Japanese colony and had been um, from 1905 and then until the end of World War II. And, and, you know, I think sometimes, well, I know that, you know, our education here tends to still look towards Europe and European history, Mm -hmm. still not that much towards the Pacific. And so that was all new to me, um, at least as far as Korea went and, and this colonial period which was very tough on the people. You know, they, the women had to be very careful that they would be raped, that they could be kidnapped and sent to become comfort women. They, uh, the Japanese were stealing food. They also forced all of the people to speak Japanese and take Japanese names. And so people continued kind of covertly speaking in their own language mm-hmm. and then you know, once World War II was over, they were able to revert back to their um, original names in some cases and go back to their original language. So it's fascinating that a theme in some of your other books works its way into this one very, very naturally. And I had no idea there was such a close relationship between the women of this area and uh, work in Russia. Right. So they go out and do uh, itinerant work. And they would dive off the coasts of mainland Korea, Japan, and China, all of which are cold in winter. No question. They all snow. It's like the polar bear club every day is your job. Exactly. But the coldest place they did was diving off the coast of Vladivostok in winter. And, you know, here we are at your studio and coming in. I can see the ice on the lake. And just thinking about this, you know, what these women did. And they were just wearing these little homemade cotton bathing suits. There are stories of women diving off the boat into the water and just dying on impact from the shock of the cold. But nevertheless, uh, these women, science has proven, had the greatest ability of all human groups on earth to withstand cold water. And, um, you know, I was really curious, was this genetic or was it some type of an adaptation? And, yeah, I was fascinated that in the book, suddenly these scientists arrive and they want to study the way these women's bodies work, their basal metabolism. And I always wonder, you know, when it's a fiction book, how much is based on fiction and how much is based on fact? So what did these scientists find? 
you really want me to tell you? <laughs> Just so the, turned, the layman's so, way. <laughs> so it turns out that it really was an adaptation. So there were all of these studies in the 1960s really looking at, you know, how could these women do this? Were they related in some weird way to a seal, a particular kind of seal? You know, what did they have in People com- were conjecturing that? Yes, they really <laughs> were. And did they have some genetic component? Was there something off with their thyroid? I mean, all of these ideas. And then in the early 1970s, there began another three-year study. And again, they were looking at, you know, what is this, genetic, genetic or an adaptation? In the first year was when wetsuits were introduced. Within a year, they'd lost something like 60% of their ability to withstand cold. And by the end of the study, they'd lost it completely. So it was an adaptation. So, yeah, just to be clear to the people out there, in Chicago, we have this icy lake. And those kinds of temperatures wouldn't have necessarily scared a henyo. Well, I don't think they liked diving in that kind right. of temperature. Right, you described how they're all kind <laughs> they're of, kind all of chilly. shivering. And but they could take it? They could take it. Yeah, they could take it. And they would stay in the water for about 30 minutes, warm up on the boat for 30 minutes, then back in the water for 30 minutes, back, you know, back and forth every half hour. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ, and today I have with me acclaimed author, Lisa C., whose latest book is called The Island of the Sea Women. Yeah, I mean, I really loved in this book how it seemed like you'd gotten so into the fine details of their lives and their their daily cooking and what they would find below, how they would gossip with each other. Talk to me about how you, you got to know that. I mean, is it just, you know, years of interviewing people and knowing what details to pick up? I do think there is something to having spent years interviewing people and especially interviewing older people. And I think there are two things that happen with older people that make make them a unique group of people to interview. Number one is if they're old enough, they've lost everyone. There's no one who's going to come and complain that they're letting the secrets out. I remember once in China interviewing the oldest living Mushu writer, this uh, writing of the secret woman's language. And she still had bound feet, and, and she was just telling me all of this you know, stuff I couldn't believe, really. And if you think also about China over the last 93 years, she was 93, all of the history that had happened there, and, and a lot of it pretty bad, you know. And and so she said, well, what can they do? They can't hurt me now. So I think it's both this sort of what happens with it, with your own family and your friends. If they're gone, you can just tell whatever. But also in certain countries where there have been uh, multiple political upheavals, once you get to a certain age, there is that sort of attitude of, yeah, what are they going to do to me now? And then one last thing, which is I think sometimes people will tell a stranger things that they wouldn't tell, you know, a family member or or a friend, because they're never going to see me again. Oh, right. And it's this kind of unloading sometimes of, of things that really have been kept a secret or have been very painful. But it's like, oh, I'm never going to see you. So good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the story is rich with history. It's rich with geography and history and and sea life and and the the skills that you need to become one of these divers. But at its heart, it's a story about the relationship between two women. And that's, you know, a recurring theme in your work. 
Do you feel like that's just an endlessly fascinating topic for you or just a great vehicle uh, to use to tell broader stories? Well, I can answer that in two parts, too. Okay. First, uh, you know, we have to remember that women haven't been writing all that long. Yes, there are some women in the past, the Bronte sisters and um, Jane Austen, George Eliot, but really women didn't start publishing in any kind of significant way until about 60 years ago. So our stories, the stories of women's friendship, of mothers and their children, of sisters, to have those be written by women is still, if you think of the entire canon, is still relatively new. And I think we should be telling our own stories. The other part of that, though, is um, I am interested in what I sort of think of as the dark shadow side of women's relationships. And we will tell a friend, for example, things that we wouldn't tell a husband or a boyfriend or a lover or our mother or our children. It's a particular kind of intimacy. It's a particular kind of vulnerability. And, of course, anytime you have that, you are open to betrayal. You're open to hurt. And I just I'm kind of interested in going into those shadows and seeing um, what happens in them and and. When the worst thing happens or something terrible happens, how do you come out of it? Can you remain friends? Um, can you forgive? And that's a big theme in this book, and I don't want to give anything away. So as you know, I'm very interested in food. And what these women were going down for were certain sea delicacies, sea cucumber, urchin, sometimes octopi with deadly results. Did you eat well while you were on the island? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was fabulous. There are so many specialties on this island. You know, the food is completely different from mainland Korea. One of my favorite things actually was a porridge made with the five grains of Jeju where they um, stew in this porridge an entire bird. Another thing that was just delicious was just to be walking, you know, along the shore as the henyo are coming out, and they'll flip over a bucket. You sit on the bucket, and they just, you know, open up a sea urchin and give you a spoon, and you just, you know, you're literally eating these these sea creatures within five minutes of having come out of the water. So there must be some incredible delicacies from the sea that uh, you can find there fresh that you just don't necessarily see anywhere else these days. Well, I think top amongst those would be abalone. And I can remember when I was a little kid, I'm from California, and we had huge abalone beds. And so as a kid, when we'd go out to eat, you know, I would always ask, could I have a hamburger or a hot dog? But no, I always had to have the cheapest thing on the menu, which <laughs> happened to be abalone. And how did they serve it? Like in a hot dog bun no, or something? No, or? They, it's sliced and sauteed and, or, you know, like like a like a steak, yeah, like okay. an abalone yeah. sort of steak. <laughs> Even now when I think about it, it's just like, ugh. <laughs> just so much as a kid. And then in California, there was a parasite that just 
killed them all. So now for us, abalone is a huge, huge delicacy. But on Jeju, this is one of their specialties. And you can go into restaurants and they grill them. I'd say they're about three, two and a half, three inches across. They're baby abalone. They grill them and then you will get a dozen or more on a platter. It it looks like you're getting a a plate of oysters. And they're just so delicious. So, and I had to overcome my <laughs> Your childhood aversion my, to them. My childhood aversion, but they're just delicious and very healthy. Yeah. I remember um, an aunt of mine, she went to a, a Chinese 70th birthday party and she said, Monica, you'll never believe it. Everybody got their own abalone. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. That was like the sign that they had arrived. And so uh, an area that would be so rich in it. Wow. Well, that's that's fantastic. I think I'm going to have to visit. Yes, absolutely. And you say that there's a porridge with... Yes, there's a porridge that they make for babies, for people who are ailing, and for the very elderly. And it, it's flavored with um, sea urchin roe, so uni. Called uni, yeah, uni. you see in the sushi yeah, restaurant. And it's delicious. It's wow. really delicious. Um, the, other, the other food that they're probably maybe most known for in some ways is this black pig. Hmm. And it only lives on this island. Uh, And it's so tasty. And they grill, you know, barbecue it and use every part of the pig. But um, I've looked and looked to see if there's any place else that has it. And I haven't been able to find it. And um, this pig originally was part of this kind of cycle of three that they had before they had indoor plumbing and sanitation. And so on this island, you... um, Maybe I wouldn't want to talk about no, it. No, I grim. mean, I think it's, it, <laughs> it's, it's the way the world works. Yeah, yeah. so they had these latrines that that you would climb up, you know, it was raised, you'd climb up, you'd, we'll say, do your business, and then the pigs were underneath eating whatever came out. Then later you would slaughter the pigs, eat the pigs, and then, of course, what you'd eaten would come out of your body again to keep this cycle of three going forever. Talk about recycling. Yeah, talk about recycling. They don't do that anymore, but they still have the pigs. Lisa C., best-selling author with the new book, The Island of Sea Women. Thank you so much for coming in and talking today. Thank you for having me again. That was WBEZ's Monica Eng talking with Lisa C. about her book, The Island of Sea Women. Tomorrow on Worldview, a human rights attorney from Mexico tells us about indigenous rights in Mexico's Yucatan region. Hope you can join us. Don't forget, you never have to miss this program. Sign up for the Worldview podcast, and you'll never miss the good stuff again. Go to our website at wbez.org slash worldview and sign up there or wherever you get your podcast. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.